In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to a liturgical prison by a canonical court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security diocesan stockade to the ecclesial underground. Today, still wanted by the Vatican, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, then you should listen to Libra Cristo War College. Wednesday War College. My name is Jesse Romero. We'll be having Kyle Clement on real soon. <clears throat> a lot to talk about today. I hope you had a ho- a happy, holy 4th of July yesterday, Independence Day. When I think of independence, I think about words like freedom. I think about words like liberty. I think about words like redemption. All those things remind me of what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. Liberation, deliverance, redemption. Uh, everything about Independence Day, the 4th of July, it reminds me of what, of the ultimate independence that Christ won for us on Calvary. Let's never forget that as Catholics. And there are people, I mean, we do honor, of course, all the, all the veterans that have died in, in past wars in this country <clears throat> to... To give us what we experience today, which is uh, freedom, freedom and liberty, at least up to this point, who knows, who knows what's in store in the future. But the fact is, uh, the Constitution gives us uh, the freedom to express ourselves, the freedom of religion, the freedom to peaceably assemble. And so we thank all those men and women uh, in American times past that have fought overseas in wars to give us the ability to hold on to these freedoms that actually come from Christ. Freedom and liberty comes from Christ. Also just want to mention that today, Wednesday, is the feast day of St. Elizabeth of Portugal. St. Elizabeth of Portugal, pray for us. St. Elizabeth was the daughter of a Spanish king and the 12-year-old bride of King Dennis of Portugal. And from the first, Elizabeth of Portugal devoted herself to relieving the sufferings of the poor of the kingdom. Yet the chief beneficiary of Elizabeth's kindness was her husband. And during Dennis's many travels, he fathered several illegitimate children. Elizabeth freely supported all of them. What a wife, what a woman. When her own son, Alonzo, rebelled against his father, Elizabeth brokered peace between the two. Her tender care for Dennis on his deathbed definitively won his heart for Christ. Afterwards, Elizabeth dressed in the garb of a Franciscan tertiary and gave herself in prayer and humble service until her own death in 1336. St. Elizabeth of Portugal stands as an example to many women who are in bad marriages with, with bad men. And I tell you, this is how God makes saints out of women, is by raising up St. Monica's. And there's a lot of St. Monica's around us today, and a lot of St. Elizabeth of Portugal's as well. Pray for us. <clears throat> uh, we, hey, Brother Kyle, how are you, my friend? Happy, hope you had a great 4th of July Independence Day, my friend. Certainly did, Jesse. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Kyle, tell us a little bit, um, you know, the 4th of July... Independence Day, it wasn't, uh, for us, for us as Catholics, 
there's there's another historical twist to it because as Catholics, since the very beginning of this country, as great as this country is, but as Catholics, we have experienced bigotry and race and hatred, not not race and hatred and, and bigotry ever since the inception of this country. And guess what? Nothing's changed under the Biden administration. It seems like all this is coming back. The chickens are coming back home to roost. Can you give us kind of a little overview of the good and not so good of the 4th of July? Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I, I, and I really liked what you were saying with regard to uh, St. Elizabeth of Portugal. Not only is her testimony and her life, um, does it stand outside of time as far as, as far as an eternal response, but it also stands in time. We are a historical people. Uh, our God is a historical God. He is the author of history, in fact, and all of history is a response either in support of or in opposition mm. to God. And that may chafe the atheists and it may chafe those who do not believe, but bottom line is all of uh, history is pivotal, pivotal on the single most important moment, historical fact, and that is the Annunciation, when God mm. condescends and becomes man. Mm. And all of humanity, all of creation is divided in their response to this moment. And so um, we do well always and everywhere to think about where we are cosmically. Dates have meaning. Um, 911 is a response to uh, a calendar, a date, an anniversary. Every it's amazing the dates that you can pick out, and they have a liturgical significance. They have a mm. Catholic historical significance. But you bring up specifically yesterday's Independence Day, yeah. um, and we are encouraged, of course, to pray for the land of our birth and to uh, support the land and the government of our birth. But quite simply, um, this is not a Catholic country. In a broader sense, this is not a Catholic world. Um, the devil is the prince of this world. Our home is somewhere else. We're made for, for somewhere else, and we seek to return to that home. Hmm. But in this hot lacrimae marum vale, in this valley of tears, in this, in this sojourn here on this earth, Catholics find themselves in different throughout history and different uh, configurations to government. There have been times when um, there were a thousand years of Christendom where the monarchs were coronated by the popes and church and state were of one accord. And this was a beautiful time, but this is the minority of the time. This is not the majority. But to look at July 4th, to look at Independence Day from, from a Catholic perspective is very, very important. And to do so, we have to go back and understand that colonization and the colonies and the Declaration of Independence is not a unique thing that happens. And it's actually a, um, a response uh, or an inordinate, a disordered response to right authority. Christ, for all the, in, in, uh, for all the, the attempts, Jesuitical attempts to redefine Christ, he was not a revolutionary. Among his quotes are, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that not a single uh, letter of it may fall away. Amen. Again, when he's talked about, when he's asked about taxes and uh, the Roman government, he does not advocate, nor does Peter 
nor does Paul, nor does Irenaeus, nor does Clement, nor does any Linus, Clement, Cletus, Sextus, Cornelius, Cyprian, none of the saints advocated revolution. None of them. Mm. And so that's why, that's why when we see an Oscar Romero or a Latter-day Saint, and I'm using that term pun intended, we see one of these Latter-day um, saints named who advocated um, civil disrest, revolution, liberation, theology, etc. This is inconsistent with tradition. This is inconsistent with Christ himself. Yes. But revolution is not a Catholic concept. It is absolutely a Protestant concept, a Protestant concept. It is born out of protest. It is born out of resistance to right authority. It is born out of a sense of placing self above providence. And when we look at it, we see that, um, let's go back and just look at how this particular part of the world uh, came to be um, as it as it is modernly. We're, Going talk, back we're, talking about the thir- 11, we're talking about the 13 colonies here, right? Correct. So let's go back a little bit before them. And so the first record of priests being sent to, quote, the New World is 1126. This is the, um, this is the Bishop of Greenland, Greenland, sending an envoy of priests uh, and monks to Newfoundland in 1126. When you go to the south, Columbus in 1492, um, and then the second official mass um, is the Epiphany Mass in the Dominican Republic in 1494. And, and what we have to remember is that this was not colonization or exploration as the, um, as the Freemasons rewrite history. It was um, Ferdinand and Isabella, who should be saints, very much articulated this in some of their letters is with the discovery of these new lands and souls, they were ushering in the second coming of Christ because uh, from what they understood was every creature must hear the name of Christ proclaimed before he comes again. And so from Newfoundland in 1126 down to Columbus, they were emptying out their treasuries to try to deliver the gospel. That's what was happening. That's what's in the church records. That's not what we were taught in public schools. So these people... And in the, 1490... Yeah, Kyle, go the, ahead. Uh, the early explorers that you're talking about, these Catholics that were here way before the Protestants were, they had as their mission, basically the, the, the social reign, the social kingship of Christ, right? To extend the kingdom of Christ here on earth. It was... Uh, there were not secular voyages or secular political endeavors. It was, it was religious in nature, right? Oh, that's absolutely right. Is to proclaim the gospel so that every creature may hear his name. Um, The understanding and the theology was and is that until every creature has heard the name of Christ proclaimed, he will not come again. And so they were trying to usher in the second coming. They were trying to usher hold, in. Hold that thought, Kyle. Um, hold that thought, my friend. You're listening to Wednesday War College. Just remember, Kyle Clement. Stick around. We're talking about the 4th of July, the Catholic roots to the 4th of July. Stick around. We'll be right back.
Wednesday War College, just remember Kyle Clement. We're talking about the 4th of July Independence Day. <clears throat> Kyle, I even read years ago that even America itself was named after uh, an Italian Catholic explorer. His name's Amerigo Vespucci, who died in 1512. Apparently, he was uh, sent out here by King Manuel of, of Portugal, who was also a Catholic. And uh, Amerigo Vespucci uh, participated in, as an observer in several voyages that explored uh, South America between uh, 1499 and 1502. So uh, eventually the new continent, America, was named after this, uh, this uh, Italian explorer, Amerigo Vespucci. Something, all of planet Earth has the blueprints or the fingerprints of Catholicism all over it. You're precisely right, Jesse, and and people may try to deny and rewrite, but that, it, you know, the truth always comes out. Um, as you well know, the, the truth always comes out. Just keep asking the same question, and eventually um, the, the truth shows itself and, be, and becomes clear for what it is. The, um, the history going back, um, interestingly enough, the very first, uh, when you talk about the first masses, there's a list of them. Um, in 1498 in Newfoundland, John Cabot and the Augustinians uh, celebrate mass. In 1526 near Cape Fear, North Carolina, the Dominicans land and establish a mission. In 1565, um, St. Uh, uh, Augustine, Florida, California, 1602, Point Loma, San Diego, 1634 at Clement Island. This is going to be the first mass in the colonies. In 1634 at Clement Island, a group sent by um, Lord Baltimore lands at Clement Island, part of Maryland, and they promptly bought the island. And so this is a history different than much of the acquisition of the colonists, uh, English colonists especially, but the Catholics who showed up, the, the English Catholics who showed up, bought Clement Island. They were, had been told that they would have to settle in these areas. It was in the least favorable areas. But because of Catholic persecution in England, they were not allowed to hold public office. They were not allowed to uh, participate in um, this, the life of an English citizen. And so to, to look at what was happening in 1634 when they arrived, and they were not allowed to operate under some of the um, Jamestown laws of 1607, which established colonial rule. Uh, self-rule for the colonists. So the Catholic history and the Protestant Freemasonry history on this continent, specifically in the 13 colonies, is is two different tracks. Um, and so they were literally disallowed from holding public office. This was part of the persecution. You know, uh, I, I, just, I, I just remember now, uh, my uh, engineer Richard reminded me that Catholics also went through uh, experienced racism. He reminded me that the Irish Catholics initially in this country, it's, uh, it's no secret that Irish immigrants were treated as slaves back in the mid-1800s, and the supremacists back then were the Protestants, the, the Wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. 
they always considered any person of Latin descent, Italian, Spanish, Hispanic, Portuguese, they considered them inferior at the inception of this country. So, yeah, Catholics also experienced racism in this country at, at the very inception. I just uh, thought I'd just throw that out there to correct myself. Yeah, and so, and so I'd, like to, I'd like to explore the statement that you made right there because I think it's very, very important. It's for, because we as Catholics... We only recognize one race, the human race. Yes. And so when we use racism as discrimination, what we need to know and, know and understand is it's much more egregious to persecute someone not because of their color or their culture, but because of their religion. And that's what um, was done to Catholics. We were historically... We were Catholics, we're the most persecuted group in all of the United States. The persecution has lasted longer and continued. There were Catholics who were, I will give you a name, Father James Coyle, a Roman Catholic priest, Irish priest, was assassinated by the Ku Klux Klan in Birmingham, Alabama, August 11th, 1921, barely 100 years ago. He was assassinated by the Ku Klux Klan, an Irish Catholic priest in vestments. This also was happening south in Mexico. Catholic priests were being drugged out of masses in vestments and being shot. The FSSP parish in El Paso, Texas, was part of New Mexico, or was, was part of Mexico, but the wall on that, on the west wall of that church still is pockmarked with bullets. The priest having been assassinated um, there by the Revolution in 1924, I believe. Mm. This is a hundred years ago, in, in right here, right now. In the 1880s, Father McGivney forms the Knights of Columbus to form an armed presence in the neighborhoods, um, in Catholic neighborhoods, because Catholics were being uh, openly persecuted and assaulted. This country is not, nor has it ever been, a Catholic country, though Catholics have died in great numbers for its freedom. You know, Kyler, it reminds me of a movie I saw years ago. Uh, it was called Gangs of New York, and it was put out by Martin Scorsese, who's pretty anti-Catholic himself. But what it did, it depicted the the gang fights between Protestants and Roman Catholic Irish immigrants, uh, you know, right around the Civil War, uh, you know, in, in the ni- early 19th century. It shows the tension that, that the Irish Catholics, when they were coming over here from from across the pond, they were experiencing at the hands of Protestants in New York. The movie was pretty well done in terms of the anti-Catholic bigotry uh, that was very, very, uh, I mean, it was, it was just over the top. But, but even, even in recent times, a friend of mine, I get only God knows ex- the exact details, <clears throat> and, and, and heaven will vindicate him uh, and, and uh, accuse his, his, uh, his murder. But even Bishop Connolly, I, I have my opinions of uh, the fact that uh, the way he, the way he was murdered, there was some anti-Catholic, uh, some anti-Catholic uh, sentiment to the way uh, Bishop Connolly died. To me, I just don't think it was just some random gang member from drug addict from South Central Los Angeles. Once again, it just the point that I'm making is that 
anti-Catholicism is alive and well in America, and especially under this president, under this president, Biden, uh, who's a fake Catholic, we have the most anti-Catholic legislation that we've ever had coming from the White House in the last three years under this president. Well, you're precisely right. And, and, you know, on paper, we had a Catholic president and a Catholic speaker uh, of the House under some of the most egregious um, things. The, the, one of the points to be made as we look at our history in, uh, is let's look back and see where there was this Catholic movement. First of all, if we had been monolithically Catholic, if America had truly been a, a melting pot, and when we arrived here, we all became um, Catholic Americans. Now, we have to be, as Catholics, we have to be Catholic first. And I think that's one of the things that we really have to look at is, are we Catholic first? Because there's coming a time in this country, and it may be here, where being Catholic and being American may not be um, possible. And so we're going to have to choose what is our first allegiance. It will have to be to Catholicism. And, and it may not be to Rome, but it may be to Catholicism. And so that is another topic in and of itself. <laughs> the, the, point being, the point being made is that Freemasonry has been expert in not only duping, but managing not only Catholics, uh, but blacks, um, Hispanics, and other groups in this country, they've been expert in managing them. And one of the methodologies they use is to cling to an ethnicity. This is why that they it was popular to have uh, Polish parishes, Irish parishes, Italian parishes, German parishes, etc. Because at the time, in the 18, especially the mid 1800s through 1900. Um, it was the Tridentine Mass. It was the Latin Mass. If we had been monolithically Catholic, uh, it would have been very difficult for us to have been managed. And when you had a Father McGivney, when you had a Father Coyle, when you had a, uh, some of these priests and churchmen who spoke up, they were quickly silenced or sent out of the country. They were deported or they were sent away. Uh, they were silenced. They were canceled. And so... Cancel culture or canceling is a Freemasonic, um, it's a satanic um, strategy, if you will, or tactic. But what really changed the Catholics uh, and other groups was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was a 33rd degree Mason. He was a Mason's Mason. When you look at Europe being divided between, uh, when you see the picture of, of um, Stalin, Delano uh, Roosevelt, and Churchill dividing up Europe, those are three 33rd degree Masons who are determining one world government, uh, a transition period of one world government. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt convinced the Catholics that he was their champion. He convinced blacks that he was their champion. Hmm. He convinced the lower middle class that he was their champion. And this is what made the Democratic Party what it is today. Well, if Catholics, Hispanics, Blacks, all of us, all of us people with hard calloused hands are nothing if we are not loyal. Mm. And it's now taking four generations to realize that we were duped. We were well, duped by Freemasons. Clinton and Obama and now uh, uh, Biden have used uh, Franklin Roosevelt. His, they've, they've basically uh, taken his, his uh, way of governing 
and they've continued it, and we're feeling the effects of it. So, so Roosevelt's the culprit, and and you said he's a, he was a thirty third degree Mason. So this uh, this man reached the highest echelons of Freemasonry. He know he knows that he was worshiping Satan. I give yeah, I kind of give a pass, Kyle, for some of the you know first uh, you know uh, the looky loos that are joining Freemasonry, maybe first, second, third degree. They they don't know the inner workings of Freemasonry, but once you get up to the thirty second, thirty third degree, they know that the, the great architect is Lucifer. Correct. That's precisely right, and and when you you look at this, uh, by the time. It, you know, we can fold all of the Bohemian Grove. We can fold all of these things, all of these things which are now coming to light that people for years were saying, well, it's conspiracy theory. I've always told people I'm no theorist. I see what I see and we know what we know. Um, but the successor of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a totally un- unqualified haberdasher from Kansas named Harry Truman. Okay, I want you to, I want this- you to stop... Stop right there. You, that's that's a good teaser for the next segment. You're listening to Wednesday War College. Jess Mary Kyle Clement talking about this country, Fourth of July, Independence Day, and uh, some of the, the 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 nice things about this country. Not so nice. We'll be right back. Wednesday War College, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement, we're talking about Independence Day. Uh, really, the, the only independence that, that uh, any of us will experience eternally is what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. Everything's temporary. All wars that are won and the benefits of these wars or the fruits of those wars. Uh, the just wars I'm talking about, not the unjust wars. But the the, the total independence uh, from from eternal damnation and from hell is what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. Let's not forget that. Now, there are hints of people, heroic people, we call that heroic virtue, that do give their life for others. And in so doing, they do emulate Jesus Christ. And uh, we have nothing but respect and admiration for them. All the the good men, the, the men of goodwill and women who have died in all these wars since the, the inception of this country. And I'm talking about the just wars because there's been a lot of unjust wars as well. We talk also a lot of the law enforcement, paramedics, firemen, uh, policemen who have given their life for completely unknown strangers that they serve day in and day out in uniform. And so we thank them for imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. Kyle, you had us on a cliffhanging moment the last segment. You were talking about, uh, you went from Roosevelt, and then you were, you talked about another figure that basically picked up the mantle of Roosevelt. Yes, thank you, Jesse. So in, in Delano Roosevelt, in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we see a four-term president elected to four terms. And so uh, we, we had term limits on the presidency come about as a result of this. But he built a dynasty and a particular affiliation with the Catholic Church where priests and bishops, this is the first time that the Catholic Church really advocated political position. And he enlisted their help because he assured them that he would help the their flock. Uh, we saw a, a significant shift, especially in the American church here, to an emphasis on temporal, uh, the, spirit, the corporal works of mercy versus the spiritual works of mercy. It's the height of the depression. Um, the churches are emptying out their treasuries to support people. The Archdiocese of Denver is a classic example 
where they emptied out their temporal treasuries and put Catholics to work. Any Catholic man in the Archdiocese of Denver who had no employment was employed um, harvesting rocks, laying bricks, doing all kinds of things. But we saw this across the country. And it's amazing that just simply 50 years before, in the 1880s, we had the No Name Party, which was openly persecuting Catholics, especially in the Northeast. Um, by the 30s, the, the Klan has disbanded. In the 20s, it's been um, officially routed. It went underground. Um, and so Roosevelt enlisted the political support, and this is the first time you had politics spoken from from the pulpits, from Catholic pulpits and in homilies. And so this was a, a significant shift, and that's carried over. Uh, we still see clergy being shaped and, and Catholics being shaped by this, this shift under Roosevelt, who promised um, in exchange for the Catholic vote, for the monolithic Catholic vote, that he would um, help uh, the, the Catholic population, which was for the most part working class. And while he did that in a, in a, in a short term, in the corporal term, the spiritual ramifications of that we're still dealing with. Hmm. He, is, he was not a Catholic. He was anti-Catholic, but he was listening to his, um, to his advisors. Incidentally, um, we heard, you know, he has so many quotes. And when he's discussing December the 7th, a day that will live in infamy, you know, oh, talking yeah. about when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, but he doesn't mention that it was the vigil of the, um, of the Immaculate Conception. He doesn't, he, uh, he, he doesn't mention that it was, uh, it had to do with the patron title of Our Lady, the patroness of the Americas. And so it, it, he, he fails to mention that. He probably doesn't see the connection. I mean, he's probably just a, you know, a, an, uh, a historical Protestant that doesn't know much of Catholic history. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Correct. But now we have, I want to point out something that in Harry Truman, we have what will become an archetype for the Democratic president, all the Democratic presidents to come. And I would propose to you that this is, this is a, the first in a series of Democratic presidents who will be installed and not elected. Hmm. He's a 33rd uh -huh. degree Mason. He's un he is unqualified. And if you remember the picture of him holding a newspaper that says Tr Dewey defeats Truman, Thomas Dewey, all the newspapers, everyone called the election for Thomas Dewey. And Truman ups was the upset. You remember that? Yeah, you're you're jogging my memory, my long-term memory, and I and I do recall that now. So what you're, what you're saying is that stolen elections is not something that just happened under Donald Trump. You're saying that this is something that's been happening a long time now. Rigged that's election. correct, and I would propose to you, I, I would propose to you that the first rigged election, which in, included uh, deceased voters, multiple voters, all of these things, uh, was Truman. You got another example with Johnson. Um, crooked elections are not something that is new, but one of the indications of crooked elections is where there's a clear public sentiment one way, and then suddenly there's a, quote, surprise um, winner, and this person is usually unqualified, and, and that list is long. Lyndon Johnson was unqualified. 
um, he, they can get him in as a vice president to make him president. Remember, Truman didn't start out as a president. He was first a vice president. And then, then he assumes uh, a term. And so anytime this is where Andrew Johnson replaces Lincoln as a result of the assassination, Johnson replaces Kennedy as a result of the assassination, et cetera. Um, you've got Ford who replaces Nixon or Agnew who replaces Nixon is going to replace Nixon. But you've got all of these. When you go back and look, there's a pattern here. There's a very discernible pattern um, where people who are absolutely unqualified. Can anyone give anybody uh, legitimate qualifications for a foreign born Barack Obama to be elected a president of the United States? Yeah. And there's and they're still sealing his uh, his transcripts from college and and uh, other things that should be public at this point. Uh, there's there's a lot about Barack Obama that they're still concealing from us, from the general public. Correct. How do you deal with a, a recording which has disappeared? But I remember seeing it where he made the statement. I was not born in America. I was born in Kenya. He said it. I didn't say it. <laughs> oh, Talk about talk about mass psychosis. That's exactly what the media does to us. They, the uh, Kyle, the media has been MK ultraing the American public for decades now. You're precisely right, Je- uh, Jesse. You are precisely right. And so the the whole point is that if we we need to re- to return to two principles. Number one, there is only one race. When you persecute someone because of their religion, that is a much worse crime than persecuting them because of the color of their skin. Um, the color of their skin or their culture, that's an ethnicity. That's a, um, that's a thing that is not, we, we can't call that racism because there is only one race for the Catholic. We are all humans. We're equal in dignity. There is an e- equality and the dignity there. Um, but this is one of the strategies is they've always used what are our differences to diminish or to divide. If we monolithically realize that we as Catholics, our, plat- our party platform is virtue. That's it. It's, it's virtue and morality. That's it. We know that you can't legislate it. It's con- it got to come from within. It's got to come from a, with it, from a desire for charity not temporal redistribution of wealth, but a charity that says one man is responsible for other men. This is the monolithic party party platform of Catholicism that we've lost. And we lost it with James II prior to the settling of the colonies where every man came here for himself, except for the Catholics who, who came here for the salvation of souls. When it's about the salvation of souls, and that has to be the Catholic antiphon, that has to be what motivates all of our our actions. When we can start as a people to return to that, um, I think that we have a chance. But come what may, we're still in this valley of tears. We're in this we're in this sojourn here on this earth, and so to realize who we are, what we are, and give thanks to God. I really liked your what you said. Uh, in your book about a Catholic vote for Trump is essentially it comes to conscience. But one has to have a properly formed conscience mm. in order to make a conscious decision. Yeah, but that's what we're lacking in America right now. We got a, America has, a, as a nation, a malformed, deformed, uninformed, uh, you know, cauterized conscience. 
and uh, we've got to return to first principles, which means we have to return back and and uh, and apprehend uh, uh, the uh, the divine revelation, so that we can form our moral conscience based on the word of God, not based on the opinions of men. Uh, Kyle, something interesting about the one of the Catholic contributions to this country is the whole notion of that we are made in the image and likeness of God, the whole image of imago Dei. That's a Catholic concept. Most people don't realize that, and that's where we get you know, human rights and civil rights, the fact uh, that uh, it, natural law, people say, yeah, hey, that's true. The Catholics say that we're born in the imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. Uh, but I'll tell you something, that's 51 countries in, 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 in Islam, they do not believe in imago Dei. They say that's a fundamental idea of Western society. That's a Christian idea. They reject Imago Dei, 51 Islamic countries. But that is one of the great contributions to Western civilization by the Catholic Church is the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And uh, this shapes, uh, this shapes, it should shape everything about Western civilization. Well, it certainly should, because at, at the end of the day, we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles because we are founded by Christians. Now, the division on the Christians is between the Protestants and the Catholics. Um, so let's go back to you know the pre-Reformation period or deformation, depending on how you want to talk about it, where we proclaimed our faith. We didn't water it down. We didn't um, defend it. We simply proclaimed it. And it was that faith that gave us the saints. It gave us heroic virtue. Amen. But we have to be about the pursuit hold, hold of that virtue. Thought, the Kyle, way we I hear the music. Heartbreak. Stick around. Jesus, okay. uh, Wednesday War College. Just remember Kyle Clement talking about Independence Day. Stick around. We'll be right back. Wednesday War College. Just remember, Carl Clement, we're talking about Independence Day, 4th of July, all things Catholic here. Uh, Kyle, there's, there's a, a friend of mine, his, uh, he's, he's a constitutional lawyer, his name's Tim, Timothy Gordon, young guy. Uh, and he says, he says something very interesting. He, he wrote a book a while back ago, it's called Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. And in the whole book, he argues that uh, what made America great uh, is is uh, the crypto-Catholicism. Here's what he says, and it's, it, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying. In this one sentence that, recur- that comes over and over again in his book, he says this, America is a nation that is wired Catholic, labeled Protestant, and currently functions as secular. So what he argues in this book called Catholic Republic... Why America Will Perish Without Rome. He argues, one chapter to another, that all the, 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 the beautiful phrases on natural law found in the Constitution, found in the Declaration of Independence and, and, and the other foundational documents, what Tim argues, and he proves the point, he argues that there, it's, it's uh, filched Catholic uh, thought. In other words... The founding fathers, they were taken from Saint Thomas Aquinas, his thoughts on on how to uh, on, on on how to run a city, uh, on how to bring about a Christian civilization. They took from 
uh, Don Scotus. They took from Charles Borromeo. So he quotes all the great Catholic scholastics, and he shows what they said back in the 12th, 13th century. Then he goes and shows exactly where these quotes were lifted by the founding fathers, which the majority were Protestants, but one. And insert it into the Catholic, into the into the constant into the church's foundational documents. So what he argues is this: what what has made America great is the fact that we've operated at least the Constitution and Declaration operated using Catholic principles by the great scholastic thinkers. But now, because of Protestantism, that's very uh, you know anti-natural law, uh, anti anti-authority and now because of secular humanism we've actually departed from those uh early catholic thinkers that are sprinkled all over the documents of this country uh it's one of those books that you as with with a law degree you would eat this book up well he's he's precisely right is the the conscience and the intellect of the founding fathers and in fact of the world at the time of the colonization and the founding, um, these were all formed by Catholic principles. Yeah, that's what all he argues. Protestantism, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All of Protestantism is formed by Catholic principles. So when you deviate from a principle, you still have the principle from which you have deviated as the primacy, as as the principal thing. So if I don't believe in something, I'm defining my belief by what I don't believe in. This is the atheist who who says, I don't believe in God. Well, well, then you're defining yourself by telling me what you're not, not by telling me what you are. And so this is at the heart of Protestantism is they they can't defend their apostasy. They want you to defend your us to defend our faith. And no, it's it's whole and entire. It's 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 a totality. But he's exactly right, and I make the observation and continue to make it, Father and I, over and over, is that this country and and all of its legislation, there was a dramatic shift in 1960, um, if you have to pick a date, uh, for the liturgy. Incidentally, this is a shameless plug to look up Reclamation Theology and subscribe to the daily podcast and the book studies on Monte Cristo. Yeah, you know what, real um, quick, give you some more. Take a minute or two to let people know where they can hear you outside of Wednesdays. Uh, yeah, take a minute before you, you continue with that question. So um, go to www.montecristo.net, and that will let you know that is the central place to find all of the recordings, the YouTubes, and uh, several free recordings on various subjects. Also, the book study. We just started a book study on the Sanctifier by Archbishop uh, Luis Martinez, which is the definitive work on the Holy Ghost, and Reclamation Theology, which is a daily podcast that talks about some of the things that we've lost with regard to the faith. And this particular subject um, shows you daily. We had a reflection yesterday on the 4th of July and various other things. Um, but this speaks directly to this point, and that is prior to 1960, we have a, a significant liturgical deformation that starts occurring in 1955 uh, under the pen of Angelino Bugnini, 32nd degree Mason, who was a cardinal reformist in the Vatican and very much an author of Vatican II. But as he starts to deform the liturgy, we see a significant shift in 1960 in all public discourse. 
all legislation was written, the Constitution, everything else, all of this uh, democratic republic is set up to govern a virtuous people. If there is no virtue, then this structure does not work as a governance structure. Yes. And so what we're seeing is a, is a diminution in the individual, uh, in the integrity, in the moral character, the moral fiber, the virtue. Besson most succinctly said is prior to 1960, all liturgical manuals, all legislation, all governance was written with the understanding that the person who read it had a certain amount of common sense, a certain amount of decency, a certain amount of moral fiber and virtue. And if it was not prescribed in the legislation, in other words, if, it, if you were not instructed to do so, then the default was that you knew it was prohibited. So if it's not prescribed, it is prohibited. Meaning if it doesn't say to do it, you know that you're not to do it. Post-1960, with the social societal de degradation, it has now become, if it's not prohibited, it is permissible. This is why you hear people say, show me where it says I can't do a thing. Well, when we turn into a prohibi uh, uh, prohibitive society, this is the governance uh, of the rabble. This is the governance of, of the irrational uh, is to set up prohibition. And so there's no baseline or foundation of virtue, decorum, or morality, um, then we become we become ungovernable and fall back to vigilante. Well, that's where we're at right now, today, Kyle. You know, it's something interesting. Doctor Scott Hunt has another theory, and I think I I I, I think um, it sounds very plausible. He says, until we get the liturgy right, we're going to continue having. Uh, anarchy, political chaos, wars, et cetera, et cetera, because he argues that all the power on earth, all the grace that flows here on planet earth that comes from the Trinity comes through the altars of the mass. So if the sacrifice of the mass is weakened or debilitated in many areas, uh, that's going to affect the flow of grace into the cosmos, into society, and that's going to affect culture. That's going to affect, uh, you know, uh, everything. Everything that we see around us uh, is affected by the flow of grace that comes from heaven through the Catholic altars, or the lack of that flow of grace that comes from heaven through the Catholic altars. What do you think about that, Kyle? He's right. Um, I, I think that while he is right, liturgy can't be imposed. The, the return to right liturgy and, and what we're seeing now, the suppression of the uh, Tridentine Mass, is a natural reaction uh, of the deviant cleric to the righteous. And so you're going to get this resistance, but the, the traditional Mass will not die. Um, it may become restricted. It may become rare. But ultimately, it will survive and then it will flourish again, maybe watered by the blood of martyrs. But we see the cycle. And so I, I think that when we talk about Independence Day, and this is a good way to cycle back, is reformation of the liturgy is going to come by reformation of ourselves internally. As we become more virtuous, as we become more moral uh, you know, on an individual basis, then it will affect families, then it will affect 
um, the culture. But that is independence. We have to be independent of sin, of the yoke of Satan. We have to be independent of the yoke of self. And we have to serve um, God, who is, and that's where the true freedom is. And so come Holy Spirit, renew us. Um, give us the strength to stand and speak truth to power and to suffer in the way and manner in which it is most efficacious to bring, bring this about. But Dr. Hahn is correct. Um, he, he still has, and, and no discredit, he still has some products and in, inclinations. He's becoming more and more Catholic, as all of us should be becoming more and more Catholic in this understanding. But it truly starts with the individual, our fight for sanctity, our fight for holiness, and then um, as we affect our families and our churches and our parishes, and so it becomes organic. Preservation of the faith has always been in the laity. It's never been in the cleric. Wow. Kyle, last, uh, last question real quick. How can people listen to your daily podcast? So go to www.montecristo.net and subscribe to Reclamation Theology. Um, it's only a few cents a day, and um, it, uh, it gives you a look at what the ancient calendar or the old calendar was, some of the things that we've lost, and it gives you some um, reflections such as the reflection yesterday on the 4th of July and um, how, to, how to gain holiness. And, and so it, hopefully this will be an aid. Kyle, thank you very much, my friend. It's, it's great to have you on on Wednesdays, uh, you and, and, and Dr. Schneider. Uh, you guys are a great boon to the show. Uh, thank you very much, as always, and uh, hope you continue to have a blessed, happy, holy week, and we'll see you next time. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for coming on with us. Kyle Clement, uh, he's one of, I would tell you right now, he's probably the most literate, uh, well-informed lay Catholic when it comes to spiritual warfare on planet Earth, bar none. He's been working with Father Ripperger for the last 15 years. Plus, he's his right-hand man, so uh, he has just uh, absorbed so much from Father Ripperger and also having worked with uh, Monsignor Esef, uh, the oldest exorcist in the Catholic Church on planet Earth. Kyle Clement also worked with him as well, so uh, this layman is, has worked with the top of the food chain. Up next, Gary Machuda, Hands-On Apologetics, coming to you from the Midwest Command Center. As for us... Kyle and myself, we wish you Godspeed, and we are EOW. We are end of watch. We are out. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you next time. <laughs>